We are reading from Acts 8 this morning. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he had preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing great Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with our money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified... And spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The word of the Lord. been watching with some sadness and some morbid fascination the story that you may have seen in the news of Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO and founder of a company called Theranos. Elizabeth was a standout uh, high school student, raised in a privileged home, uh, privileged education, and she was considered exceptional almost in every regard, particularly intellectually, to the degree that at 19, she told her professors that she had been consumed with a passion to create something good and great for the benefit of the world, 
to bring good news, so to speak, to the world, and that she was going to leave Stanford and create her own company and do this. And her company was named Theranos. What Elizabeth uh, developed was uh, purportedly a new technology in which the blood tests of the past would be set aside. You could go into a facility, have your finger pricked, and all of the tests that have been traditionally that have traditionally required vials of blood would now only require a couple of drops. And so, if you were one of those people who hate needles, you were passionate about this idea. Uh, but it was simpler, it was cheaper, it, it was less labor intense. Right? For all these reasons, it was heralded as a great breakthrough. And technology, to the extent that she uh, fairly rapidly raised about $700 million in venture capital, and as of 2015 or so, was estimated to be worth about $7 billion, right? Maybe 21 or 22 at this point, something like that. Well, one of the odd aspects about Theranos was its utter secrecy. And last fall, the Wall Street Journal did a bit of investigative reporting and uh, wrote a, an article that said there are some problems with Theranos' technology. And those problems turned out to be that the technology didn't exist at all. Uh, it had never been developed. It didn't work. When you uh, prick your fingertip, you actually introduce all kinds of contaminants and debris into the blood sample. And there's just been no way, no technology, nobody's come up with a way to get around taking vials of blood out of somebody's arm. And so things fell apart at Theranos. And in evaluating this and asking, well, why, why did Elizabeth Holmes go down this road? She's been very reluctant to grant interviews, but if you track her story, which says, well, I was consumed from a young age to bring something truly great to the world, to offer something good. She became so consumed with this that she developed the company and moved forward and assumed that eventually they would just figure it out. They had so much money and such good resources that by the time they went public, they will have figured out the technology. And of course, as they went public and set up centers in Walgreens, and you walked into the, they piloted it in Arizona. If you walked in, you'd do the pinprick, and then they'd take a couple of vials of blood. And then Theranos would send off your vials of blood to their competitors to be tested, and your report would come back to you. And of course, all this came out in the end uh, as a realization that there was no technology. But uh, Elizabeth would say she was so committed to this notion of, of bringing good news that she was willing to make these sacrifices along the way. Now, one of the points of the story, though, is that is that really good news? Who is it good for? Elizabeth's good news was only good for her. It wasn't good for the world. And you know that because how many people and lives did she consume in moving down this road? She all of the employees who are now uh, jobless, all of the money that was wasted on something that doesn't exist, all the board members, including the likes of Henry Kissinger, who are embarrassed at having backed this young prodigy. It wasn't good at all, except for how Elizabeth perceived it for herself because she was willing to sacrifice everyone and everything around her for her to benefit. She was willing to consume those around her. And that isn't good news at all. It raises the question for us, and the question that we struggle with this morning with today's passage, is what, what really is good news? What gospel do you believe? Is it a gospel that results in good news for the world? Or is it a good news that at the end of the day, you only care about it being good news for you? 
One's a true gospel, one's a false gospel, and they're both represented by the characters in our passage today. And so we're going to just evaluate the gospel in light of our, our people. First, we'll consider the gospel according to Philip. Secondly, the gospel according to Simon the Magician. And then thirdly, the gospel according to Peter and John, but really particularly John in particular. So what do we learn from the gospel according to Philip? What's happening at the beginning of our passage? Let's set the stage. Saul has just approved uh, the, uh, the martyrdom, the killing of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, after which a persecution comes down upon the church in Jerusalem, which causes all the disciples to scatter. It's no longer safe to be in Jerusalem. They're on the run. And so uh, we see the story of the gospel and the story of King Jesus take what we have to at least acknowledge is a surprising turn. Place yourself just for a moment in the feet of a disciple. You've been following Jesus and he's had lots of big language about being king. He's had lots of big language about the kingdom he's bringing in. He's had lots of big language about liberating and healing and freeing people. And now where do you find yourself? On the run, displaced from your hometown, and watching your friends be put to death. I don't know about you, but if I'm a disciple, I start to think, you know, uh, Jesus, maybe we misunderstood you because it sure seems like we're in a worse place now than we were earlier. We're in a worse place now as a result of your kingship and kingdom than we were prior to it. We weren't on the run. We weren't being killed. We weren't afraid. What is the nature of this king? What is the nature of the kingdom? And why would it be worth worth it to follow him? Now, what's surprising is there's no hint of that in our passage. I think it probably must have existed. I think in one sense it would be foolish to say that that just wasn't on the table for the disciples or a struggle that they were having. But what Luke stresses and what needs to impress us about the reaction of the disciples is that they immediately see it as opportunity. They're not backing away from God, saying, I don't trust you, or I don't think you're safe, or I don't know where this is headed, and I'd rather just get back to my business and making a name for myself in Jerusalem. Instead, what do they do? Right? In verse 4, the towns that they're sent to, that they find themselves running to, they consider opportunity to preach the word, to extend the invitation of the gospel to those uh, surrounding, in various cities surrounding Jerusalem. Right? What a remarkable posture. When so often when things go the direction in our life that we do not like, where we might be encountering something similar to the disciples and we feel displaced or we feel persecuted or we just feel like Jesus' kingship and his kingdom isn't what it's cracked up to be, do we see that as opportunity to, to run toward obedience and say, God, what are you up to here and what opportunity do I have to extend your reputation and your glory and be a blessing or... Do we tend to back away and say, this is not really what I signed up for. This is not really necessarily what I'm interested in. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, it actually gets worse. It's almost as if God is pouring lemon juice in the wound of the disciples because where does Philip find himself? He finds himself sent to Samaria to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, if you're not familiar with the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, please know that they hated each other. Right? We don't really have an enmity that exists in our country that would have been equivalent 
to the enmity between Jews and Samaritans. Now, we don't know the exact history of the Samaritans, but generally scholars agree on this general story. When the northern tribes went into Assyrian exile, right? remember, they, they, they're never heard from again. Right? Ten tribes of Israel drop off uh, the face of the planet in terms of the biblical story. Uh, after exile, you really only get the story of Judah. And so the ten tribes that disappear, it's um, assumed that they intermarry with the people who are surrounding them. And the Samaritans are those descendants. And so the Samaritans are considered both half-breeds and sellouts, right, for not remaining faithful in the midst of exile while they were, while they were removed from the land. Now, even more so, uh, if you look briefly at the history, you've got the Samaritans wanting to rebuild the temple when Ezra shows up, and the Jews say, no, you can't participate, so they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which the Jews tear down in the second century B.C., say your temple doesn't count and they conquer Samaria and Samaria lives under Jewish occupation until the first century in which the Romans come in and liberate the Samarians and take over the whole area. So you've got a tremendous amount of animosity of hatred toward one another and now Philip is here saying hey you know what the best thing that ever happened to us the Messiah has come and I'm extending that to you. I'm inviting you to experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable act of grace in which Philip is obedient in the midst of such frustration. Right? Persecution, displacement, being sent to his bitterest, you know, most bitter foe. It's a remarkable place to be. And here we see him glad to extend the gospel. And he must have presumed that God has purposes that I can't see. Otherwise, why would he be faithful in that context? And indeed, God did have purposes. What happens? People are healed. Demons are cast out. Many believe. Men and women are baptized. And what happens is joy comes to the city. Joy is the result, the joy of the gospel, as Philip finds himself being faithful. And so we see in Philip's gospel a man who is so consumed by the love of Christ and sees himself as being swallowed up in Christ that all he can do is extend that love, and participate in the mission of God. That's where he now finds his identity. Do you find yourself frustrated in the way that Philip and the disciples surely felt some frustration? Do you feel like you're displaced? Do you feel like you're persecuted? Do you feel as if Jesus is not a great king? Is it opportunity for you to move away, a safe distance, and see how things play out? Or is it an opportunity for you to rush in and say, what does it mean to, for me to be obedient and faithful and even to press in and demonstrate more trust in Christ in the midst of this situation? That's the first example of the gospel, the gospel according to Philip. Now, if you decide that you don't like that approach to the gospel and you would prefer a gospel that is more to your making and liking and you can order it up as if you're at in and out then you you might gravitate towards the gospel according to Simon the magician. Now Simon and Philip believe two different gospels. Uh, Philip believes in a gospel that heals all things and gives him what he needs, not what he wants. But Simon believes in a gospel that gives him what he wants. And he doesn't really care about what God thinks that he needs. Uh, verses 10 and 11 tell us that Simon has a very big reputation. Simon apparently was quite the magician. 
He was identified as great. Everyone followed him around, wanting to see the work that he did. But as Philip comes to town, Simon is impressed. Uh, Philip is doing all kinds of miracles, and he has uh, assembled a crowd. Simon comes, believes with other Samaritans, is baptized, and it even tells us that Philip then started, or pardon me, Simon started to follow Philip in his mission in the city, uh, cities of Samaria. Now, in the midst of this, right, Simon has converted and believed. Peter and John show up to uh, dispense, so to speak, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to raise a number of questions that we'll deal with in a moment. But first, I want us to finish the story of Simon, to consider the gospel according to him. See, when Peter and John start laying hands on people, and the Spirit is then distributed through their laying on of hands. Simon sees this, and it's so momentous. says, that I've got to have. If I'm going to be significant and continue to have a reputation in this community, that power I need, and I'm willing to offer big bucks for it. He offers to pay the apostles for the ability to distribute the Spirit. Now, Peter doesn't take very kindly to this and has more than strong language. If you look at verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Why is Simon pursuing the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, so that he can be powerful. So that he can be renowned. So that he can continue on in the fame that he has enjoyed previously. This is where we get the word simony in English. Simony is the notion that you would pay money to acquire some privilege in the church. And if, if Simon or simony seems foreign to you, then it really should not. We engage in it quite frequently. When you do something wrong and you think to yourself, well, now I'm going to do something particularly right or good to make up for that which I've done wrong, you're engaging a kind of simony. You're engaging a currency. It's not money. The currency is your perceived obedience. But what you're trying to do is to manipulate God. God, you will act as I dictate to you. Based on my obedience, you will, I will atone for my own sin and you will receive the sacrifice. Or on the other side, there may be something you want. You think to yourself, man, if God would just either maybe protect me from something, or if he would give me something that I think is good and worthwhile and I deserve, and so to exercise some manipulative authority over God, I'm going to, I'm going to be really good. I'm going to obey. I'm going to sacrifice. Right? And again, you're extending a currency. Right? And you know this, particularly if you're parents, this happens all the time. Right? Your children come to you and say, my, you look good today. Or, you're such an outstanding father. I'm so privileged to be your child. Or, uh, dad, have you lost weight? And, I, and for a moment, I think, or at least when it started, you know, it's, it starts at a certain age. You don't get that at four and five. You, they have to be older and more sophisticated in their sinful, broken hearts. And so uh, it starts that they, they seek to manipulate you. And then you realize that's what's happening. They, none of the words or actions are true. 
They just want what you are, have the power to deliver to them. It isn't that an adequate summary of how we approach God? Right? My words aren't necessarily true. My actions aren't true. Oh, I'd never say that out loud. Right? But I'm doing this because I want to affect a certain outcome. God, I want X. I'm going to do Y. And so I expect you to deliver X as a result of me being faithful in Y or, or um, complimenting you or worshiping you, so on and so forth. And we realize that we're not responding to God out of love, right, which is the heart of true obedience, but about, out of what we perceive we can get from God, right? And this is a gospel that's artificial. It's not good news. It's the gospel according to Simon the Magician. It's the gospel according to Elizabeth Holmes. It's the gospel that says, I will devour what is necessary so that I can have the good news that I consider good. The problem is you don't know what good is. And the good news that you want, if it's not Christ himself swallowing you up whole, then it's not good. And it's not going to do anything for you. In fact, it will corrupt you from the inside out, which, again, we'll see in a minute. Now, I told you we'd pick up uh, the story of Peter and John arriving in town. And anytime you, know, you get into the Spirit and the distribution of the Spirit, certain questions ar- arise. And Challenging questions you can see in this passage. Why can't Philip lay hands on the Samaritans? Why do Peter and John have to show up? Why do you have to lay hands? What's the magic fingertip thing that's going on, right? And why does belief in the Spirit happen at different times? I thought they happened at the same time. You've got everybody believing, being baptized under Philip. Later, Peter and John come, and then they lay hands, and then the Spirit is uh, handed out. Now, these are difficult questions, and they're challenging because Acts doesn't necessarily present us entirely a coherent picture. The first question's easier than the latter ones. The first question being, why can't Philip lay hands and give the Holy Spirit? Well, every time you get the distribution of the Spirit for the first time to a people group in the book of Acts, who is present? An apostle. Right? An apostle has the, the pride of place, a certain privilege, uh, privileged position in the book of Acts, in which the Spirit is distributed uh, through their leading um, and through their, uh, their uh, sometimes laying on of hands, sometimes not. But I think probably even more so, uh, if you just consider what's going on in the story, uh, there's a certain beauty that Peter and John come from Jerusalem to lay hands on the Samaritans because the Samaritans, remember, are already considered less than. So you can easily imagine, you know, down the road, not too far from our story, uh, Joe, Jewish Christian, bumps into Bob, Samaritan Christian. And Joe says, you know, we were all so surprised that you guys were included. No offense. We're glad you received the Spirit too. Uh, but just remember, the Spirit came to you through Philip. It came to us through the Twelve. So let's not pretend we're on the same playing field. Right? And that may, it may sound silly to you. I don't think it's silly at all. I think as humans... And particularly any reading of the church in the New Testament, you'd come to that conclusion quickly. Remember, even as we talk about them hypothetically debating their baptism, the church in Corinth actually does fight about who baptized whom. Right? It's a real argument that happens in the New Testament. And so by Peter and John going down to Samaria and executing the baptism, there's no question. Right? They're fully included. Right? Ju- uh, Ju- uh, Judaism's bitterest foe, perhaps, I mean, next to the Romans, one of the people they love to hate are fully included. There's no separation, right? It's a, the gospel has transcended 
the ethnic hatred that existed between the two of them? I think it's a fair question to ask, you know, where does the gospel need to transcend hatred that you might have for someone? But that is just the first question. The second question, or two that we might lump together, is what is this business of laying on of hands? And why does the Spirit come after faith? Well, frankly, at least for the book of Acts, there's no easy answer. Some of the stories in Acts uh, don't involve the laying on of hands. The Spirit just comes. You can think of Pentecost, or you can think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Some stories in Acts, uh, the Spirit comes later, and it comes with uh, the laying on of hands. In this story, and both with the, also with the Ephesian elders in Acts 19. And so there isn't a consistent picture of how the Spirit comes. But if we took the New Testament as a whole, you'd be on very good ground to say, when someone comes to faith, it is the work of the Spirit who has come upon them and regenerated them. That's a very safe place to be. At the same time, given Acts, I think we should all be a little bit careful. The Spirit blows to and fro where he will. And there isn't a formula to capture him. And if you think there is, you probably are in a, something of a dangerous place thinking that it's just going to be that predictable. The Spirit will act as the Spirit will. Now, that hopefully we have answered all questions you might have about the distribution of the Spirit and regeneration. Here's the really interesting part. I know you're laughing because we haven't even scratched the surface, and we're not going to. We're going to move on to the much better part, which is John. Why is John the better part? This is the last appearance for the Apostle John in the book of Acts. He vanishes, as do most of the apostles from the story, without any reference from Luke, which I don't really appreciate and intend to take up with Luke when I see him in glory. It's just, how do you write people out just by not telling us what happened? They just disappear, right? Peter's about to disappear. And you think, what happened? Why don't, I don't know. Anyway, so John. And John, the reason John is so significant is because This isn't John's first interaction with the Samaritans. John was traveling with Jesus and the other 12 disciples earlier in the ministry of Jesus, and they were headed to Jerusalem, and they had to go through some Samaritan villages. And so they asked if they could be put up in these Samaritan villages and housed, uh, that the Samaritans might show them hospitality. And the Samaritans refuse. They say, no, your, your face is headed to Jerusalem. That's where you want to go worship. You're not part of us. So we're not extending to you any hospitality. So you think John comes out and says, well, we should pray for these people. That is not what he says. In Luke 9, 54, it says, And when his disciples James and John saw it, saw the refusal of the Samaritans to be hospitable, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is John. Imagine the hatred that has to exist in your heart. His response is, oh, these Samaritans have not extended hospitality to the Lord. What a great opportunity. Jesus, why don't we wipe them off the face of the earth? Allow fire to pour down and just, we all want them to be gone anyway. Eradicate them. Now, Jesus in that situation will rebuke the disciples for their response. But how notable, how remarkable is the transformation John has experienced, right? John runs down to Samaria, not only to witness the extension of the gospel and their conversion, but then to share the Holy Spirit with them that they would be fully included as brothers now in in the fellowship of believers rather than wiped from the face of the earth. John's a beautiful picture. He's extending 
the transformation of the gospel in his very being because he has been transformed. He, like Philip, understands that the gospel is good news for the entire world, not just for me, not how I define it. And so he goes and participates. He's obedient in the extension of that story. Again, the joy results. Not only do they go on and distribute the spirit, but on their way back, it says they stop at all the Samaritan villages on the way to continue to extend the gospel to those who have been outsiders and strangers. So what do we learn? I've suggested to you today that, um, that there are various gospels. And it's a fair question to ask, what gospel, what good news are you really believing in? Is it a good news represented by Philip and John? A good news in which you are swallowed up by Jesus himself. You know, you think about it this way. Um, I was reading a theologian this week, and uh, he, liked to, he liked to talk about the problem that stems from uh, Genesis, from the fall. And he said, once, once the prohibition was set up on the tree, the apple, it's not an apple, the fruit, uh, became a sacred object for Adam and Eve. And through the lie of the serpent, that, that sacred object was imbued with the power to what? To make Adam and Eve like God. So they're consumed with this belief that if we partake of this fruit, then we will actually be made like God. Is that true? Of course not. Right? They ate of it, and what happened? Bad things. Right? That, was never, that was never on the table. Right? It's a misconception. But he said, ever since then, humanity has been consumed with a sacred object that we believe will make us like God. And that might be that you would be, I mean, for me, let's just pretend my sacred object is that someday I will preach the perfect sermon and all of Rockwall will convert. And I will be heralded as the George Whitfield of my day. And if that, yes, <laughs> glory. Right? So if that comes true, I, what I'm thinking though is that why is that good for me? I will become like God. My reputation, my renown, my significance, right? I can die a happy man. And what is it for you? It could be money. It could be wealth. It could be power. It could be to the perfect, be the perfect spouse, to be the perfect parent, right? To achieve something great at work, right? But we latch on to that, to that sacred object and we think this is what will make us like God. Now, Philip, Philip, hasn't, he's given up his sacred object. Whatever it may have been, because his story, God says, okay, this is your story. Persecution, displacement, and go to the Samaritans the absolute bottom rung of the social ladder of the Palestinian world. Right? There is no sacred object in that story. And Philip says, okay, I go to extend the authority of Christ. And Simon comes to receive the gospel, right? and he isn't swallowed by Jesus. He says, no, I want what will make me like God. I want what will give, I want to say, he continues to worship his sacred object, which is power and renown, and so the gospel simply becomes a tool to achieve that sacred object which is that he would then be, have the power over the Holy Spirit to dispel it as he wills. But John, right, he too has given up his sacred object. He no longer has to destroy the Samaritans. Instead, he's delighted to go and extend the Spirit to them and to sacrifice of himself to incorporate them in the people of God. There are many different Gospels, to be sure, but the true Gospel is good news, not only for us because we're freed of that notion of needing a sacred object to make ourselves, right? That we would finally have arrived and be like God because we are already made like God. When we are swallowed up by the Trinity and unified to the second person, unified to Christ, right? 
we are, we are brought into fellowship with the divine. You don't have to become like God. He is making you like himself. But every other gospel will try to exercise that authority in and of itself. And to that, the end is simply what, uh, what Peter calls the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You know, in the ancient world, they actually thought if you were, if you were caught up with some really negative emotion, it was an actual fluid in you that was held in a certain organ in your body. That's actually where we get the name gallbladder, right? That you would have this, and the more you were given over to it, the more the fluid would take over your body and eventually could kill you. And you were enslaved to it until it would somehow be healed. And Peter says this is the outcome, right, for going down this road of achieving your own sacred object and making the good news simply good in your own terms. It's a, the only thing that you have is the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Indeed, there are many gospels. The gospel according to Philip and John, the gospel according to Simon. The question for you today is what gospel do you believe? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that the gospel that is true is the gospel in which you come to us and you renew us. You make us yours and you transform us in ways that we could never transform ourselves. We ask that you would continually unite us to yourself and free us from the efforts in which we would find some object that whispers in our ear, yes, you can be made like God. Only you can make us like yourself. And so would you help us to surrender at this table and to give ourselves freely to you that you would make us beautiful, indeed the bride uh, that you seek. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.